The programme is Save the Nation. On ADH-TV, I'm David Flint and my producer is Charlie Noble. Well, welcome back in 2024 to Save the Nation. This year will be an important year, even a crucial year. On Tuesday, the 5th of November, we will know who will be the leader of the West for the next four years. We'll come back to that later on in the program. But first of all, what about Australia? We could, we should make it the year in which the people of Australia take over. Remember, remember, there isn't a serious problem in Australia which, if it weren't created by the politicians, has been made significantly worse by them. Not a single problem. The solution, I believe, is to increase the power to the people. Much more than in elections, the most important event in Australia in many a year has been the recent re referendum. It was a very clear and a very strong decision of the Australian people. This demonstrates, I believe, yet again, that the rank and file Australians endowed with greater common sense, indeed superior wisdom on questions of governance than the elites who are actually running this country. This is, isn't the time to put this behind us and to move on, which of course is what the politicians are trying to tell you. We shouldn't put this behind us. We shouldn't move on. The people of Australia should claim their victory and take away power from the elites. It's no exaggeration to say they're destroying the nation and eventually they'll be making us the Argentina of the South Seas. We will become poorer. There is a simple way for Australians to take over. The snag is it requires the help of the politicians to do this, to put the whole thing to the people. Labor probably would never agree to this, but the coalition might and indeed should, with the support of One Nation, the United Australia Party, the Qatar Party, the Libertarians, Lib Dems as they used to be, the Liberal Democrats. There are parties who believe in power to the people, certainly One Nation and the Libertarians and the United Australia Party. We must do what was done so well by our predecessors because this has been done before. It was done at the time of Federation. It was the people of Australia who made Federation a success. It wasn't the politicians. And with the greatest of respect to the politicians of today, I think the politicians of the late 19th century were better equipped to run this country. They certainly came to politics after successes in doing other things in life which used to be the practice in Australia. In the 19th century, you didn't find career politicians. By the way, Federation, embarrassingly, for those who hate the British, was in fact a British idea. 
It was Earl Grey, the colonial secretary, who tried to get the self-governing colonies to agree to the establishment of a, a general assembly of Australia. And the idea was that when there were matters of interest to the Australian people and the Australian politicians, which had to be dealt with in London because we were still part of the empire at that time, this assembly would do that rather than the individual governments in each of the self-governing states or colonies did, and it would have expedited matters. You ought to remember that at that time, communications were poor, and the way to send uh, some sort of missile to London, to send a message to London, was by ship and would take several months. Then they'd have to take a decision, and then it would be sent back to Australia. It wasn't a very efficient way. And Earl Grey, who was the colonial secretary, thought it would be better if there were an assembly in Australia, some sort of federation in Australia. The local politicians kicked up such a fuss against this. It was very unpopular with them because they thought they were going to lose the power and influence that they had. And the local politicians kicked up this fuss so much so that uh, Earl Grey gave up on this, but he didn't give up on one point. He made the governor of New South Wales, the Governor General of Australia, but that was just a, a name. It didn't really have any significant effect and that was dropped after a while. This continent, we have to remember, and we shouldn't forget this, it could have easily developed into several different countries, as is the case in the Americas, particularly South America, even North America, the Caribbean and Africa. We could have easily been several independent countries. We wouldn't have become the single country. We're the only continent in the world where the sublime visions of one people, one destiny, and a nation for a continent, and a continent for a nation, actually prevailed. They were fulfilled. And this was done by the people of Australia. It wasn't done by the politicians alone. So why not now save the nation and take back your country from the people who are making such a mess of it? Remember, the bickering among colonial politicians in 19th century Australia ensured that the constitution was drafted by a convention and that it would be enacted. Because because there was such a disappointment in Australia when the first convention produced a constitution in 1891 and it went back to the colonial parliaments and the politicians bickered so much, there was a movement among the people of Australia to fix this up. And there was a conference, a people's conference, not organised by any of the governments, at 1893 in Corowa. And that is why Korowa is so important in the history of our country. I doubt that it's being taught in the schools of Australia at the moment. And the Korowa plan is crucial for explaining how this country was formed. The various associations met at Korowa there was the Australian Natives Association, 
Our ancestors understood what native and indigenous mean. It meant being born in this country. And there was an organisation called the Australian Natives Association, which was anybody born here could join it if they wanted to, and various federation leagues. Towards the end of that conference at Corowa, which is a lovely courthouse in a small town in Victoria, which I once visited, I visited it because News Corporation, the Australian, put on a, a debate there at Corowa because of its historical significance, a debate on Australia becoming a republic. And I had to debate with a colleague, I had to debate Malcolm Turnbull at the Corowa Courthouse during the, uh, during the campaign for a republic. As we were going down in the plane, the Australian took us down in a plane there. I thought, well, good heavens, if this plane didn't arrive, if there was some sort of calamity, this would have a significant effect probably on the Republican campaign in Australia. Anyway, we got there and the debate went ahead. And uh, to my great amusement, there was, a, there was a, an Irishman who was very upset with Turnbull, who kept annoying Turnbull by by interjecting constantly, although he was a Republican, against Turnbull. In any event, we had the meeting there. But going back to 1893, at the Corowa Convention, the Corowa Conference, towards the end of the conference, a man who should be a hero, schoolchildren should know who he was. And uh, he was John Quick later Sir John Quick, and he became quite significant in the federal movement. He proposed a remarkably simple solution to the fact that we were never going to become a, a federation because of the bickering politicians. He realised that once a, once a constitution was drafted at a nominated convention and put to the different colonies, the colonial parliaments, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, the others too, they would bicker and want changes and so on. Well, he put up a resolution which was adopted and, as I say, it became known as the Corora Plan. The whole point was to take the fate of federation out of the hands of the politicians. Just as today we should take the fate of Australia out of the hands of the politicians who are making such a mess of this country. So what should we do? His proposal was to have an elected convention, each state electing a number of delegates. But the crucial thing was that once the convention agreed on a draft, this would be circulated, made widely available for comment also particularly circulated to the colonial parliaments, but they would not approve it. It would then come back with all the comments to the convention, which would meet again. It was an unpaid convention, by the way, and I think that's important to bear in mind. Nobody was there to make money and get lots of expenses and overseas trips and all that sort of thing that goes on these days. They were there to draft the constitution. And the idea was that once they drafted it and it was discussed, they'd go back and do a final draft and then that 
would be put to the people in each state or colony and there would be a referendum in each state and if more than two states, if two states or more agreed on the constitution, it would be then sent to London for enactment by the British Parliament because it couldn't be, there was nobody else to enact it. Uh, we were part of the British Empire and would have to go to the British and there was an assumption that the British would do what we wanted them to do. Well, Quick's proposal was to put the future of Federation into the hands of the people, just as you should now have the future of this country in your hands. And as I say, there is a way to do this. Quick's proposal, the Corridor Plan, was sent around, the politicians looked at it, they took four years looking at the Corridor Plan and then it was eventually enacted by the principal states. Western Australia was a bit slow, but most of the states thought it should go ahead. So in 1897, legislation was enacted to establish another convention, elections for another convention, and that was held in 1898. And they moved around a bit, and they looked very carefully at the Constitution. They had the draft from 1891, and they worked on that, and they produced a very good Constitution. Not perfect, but a good Constitution. There are some things that, when you look at it, you think perhaps it could be done different. For example, giving the High Court the final say in relation to the interpretation of the Constitution, giving a handful of lawyers the final say on what the Constitution means, has in fact meant that the High Court has effectively, occasionally, amended the Constitution, given it a meaning which wasn't the original intention of the founders and of the people who approved the Constitution. But there are weaknesses which should be corrected. And as I say, it was then sent to this convention which was elected in 1897. And uh, it was then discussed, final draft, final proposal prepared, sent to all the states, and the states held referendums. Not all the states, Western Australia was very slow, but most of the states held their referendums. And unfortunately, in New South Wales, the yes vote didn't reach the prescribed level which was set out in the legislation. So there was a meeting of the premiers, they made some changes which suited New South Wales. New South Wales was a reluctant state in relation to federation, not as strongly federalist as Victoria, but a new referendum was held in New South Wales and that was passed. So we had, we had five of the states in agreement. Western Australia hadn't yet held its referendum. So the premiers took the constitution to London. Remember, they were going by steamship, they weren't going they weren't going uh, and sending it uh, on the internet. None of the modern advantages were available to them. It was put through the British Parliament. They made some slight changes, which the premiers agreed to in London. Nothing of any great significance. For example, the Privy Council had a, a greater role 
than was intended in the Constitution. But this was then adopted and royal assent was given by Victoria and she, she had to hold it off because, uh, or giving effect to it, it had to be given effect by a proclamation and the Queen had to be satisfied that the people of Western Australia had agreed to the Constitution. A referendum was held in Western Australia. The West Australians agreed, probably because gold was discovered in Western Australia and vast numbers of people came from the Eastern states who voted in the referendum and probably swamped the West Australians in coming to the decision that Western Australia should be part of Australia. And uh, the constitution was then proclaimed. The Queen at Balmoral issued a proclamation. She signed it and Australia was to be federated to become an indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown. And that was to take effect on the first day of the new year and the new century. What a magnificent choice. The first day of the new year and of the new century, Australia came together. And never forget, never forget that this was done by taking it out of the hands of the politicians and putting it into the hands of the people. That was the only way we federated. And that's what we should be doing now. Incidentally, before I go on to what should happen now, I think we should note one thing. And we should praise our predecessors for this. The extraordinary thing, the really extraordinary thing, was that the process, the new process, from when it started to when royal assent was given and the Queen signed the proclamation, all that without aeroplanes, without the internet, without modern communications, all of that was done in four years. Now you can't these days lay a tram track down George Street, Sydney in four years. And you wouldn't think, you wouldn't even dream of building a dam in four years. There'd have to be something preliminary and all sorts of discussion. It would take many more years to even start the formal process in relation to a dam. How brilliant our predecessors were. And these were the people of Australia, not the politicians. The people of Australia did this. And this is what we should be doing today. We should be taking advantage of what happened at Federation copying that and overcoming the problems which we're having today. The key to federation was taking the matter out of the hands of the politicians. And that was a time when Australia was an advanced democracy, not the laggard we are today. We should do the same today. We should take the matters out of the hands of the politicians and put the control of this country, the ultimate control of this country, into you, the people of Australia. We need a second Corora plan to complete the Constitution. What we need to do is to insert into the Constitution Swiss-style 
direct democracy. And just in relation to Switzerland, which has what is called direct democracy, let me just point this out. Switzerland has none of the wonderful resources that we have, none of the mineral resources which we have been endowed with, not that sort of wealth. Switzerland has an efficient agriculture, it has a tourist industry, it has a brilliant financial sector, but it doesn't have the sort of endowments that we have. And yet, when you look at the wealth of Switzerland, you'll see that they're far ahead of us. The way to measure this is to look at the, the gross domestic product of a country, the GDP. That means everything produced in that country. Look at it in a year, then divide it over the people, so you get a per capita figure. And uh, you can, there are different ways to overcome the differences in the use of money in different countries and the value of money in different countries, called PPP. And you can look at the scale of these. If you look up Wikipedia and look for a list of countries, GDPs of countries, PPP meaning, ignoring the difference of values of different currencies, what does their currency, what can they buy with their currency, you'll find that Switzerland, without our wealth, has a GDP which is about half as good as ours. That's incredible. But there's worse. Singapore is much better than we are. Singapore, which when I was a young man was a poor state, it was a, it just come out of being a colony. It wasn't a wealthy place. Now, under good government, they've become one of the wealthiest states in the world. And one of the good examples that I like to compare Australia with is Norway. Norway is sitting on oil, it's very wealthy. It's endowed with great wealth. It's a modern country like Australia, it's a constitutional monarchy like Australia. But Norway is going on to having a GDP probably about 50% better than Australia's. That's a per capita GDP. And the distances are growing. There are trends which you can see. You can follow this. You can see that there are trends and we are slipping backwards. Our GDP is going backwards. That happened in a very dramatic way to Argentina. At the time of Federation, two of the richest countries in the world on a per capita basis, on a per head basis, were Australia and Argentina. Argentina had really disastrous governments. It didn't have the sound institutions of Australia. I remember once a, an Argentinian minister appeared on ABC television and he's asked why Australia Argentina, which was once as wealthy as Australia, isn't as, uh, hasn't been able to maintain that. And uh, he made this observation. If we were like Australia, if we had British-style institutions, we'd be as good as Australia. 
Well, we do have those institutions, but they've been taken over by the political parties and the elites who control this country. So that uh, elections, to some extent, at least the candidates in elections, the process in which those candidates are found, is very much a confected way of handing over control to power brokers too much, too often, in the principal political parties. And the result we see today, politics has become a career. You go from the university, you become a, an advisor, an advisor to politicians while you're jockeying around, giving your alliance, your, your allegiance, to a particular power broker and finding a safe seat. So you become effectively a politician for life. And most, most of the principal parties representatives, not all of them, particularly in the coalition, but most certainly in the Labour Party, are career politicians. What we need is a constitutional change, a completion of our constitution to bring in direct democracy. We are, and Switzerland is too, a representative democracy. Modern states are far too big in numbers for all the people to come together as they used to in parts of Switzerland and take decisions at public meetings, binding on the future of the government. You can't do that, so we have representative democracies where we elect our representatives. The Swiss, clever people, have tempered this with direct democracy. They allow the people of Switzerland to raise issues, to go to referendums, which are binding referendums in their country. They're called citizen-initiated referendums. And this is a wonderful, a wonderful tool of direct democracy. And we should do the same in Australia. And that's what I would suggest. A second Corowa plan would involve. I read a book a few years ago, co-wrote it, Give Us Back Our Country, which is available from Colmer Court and uh, I hope from uh, the store on the site. It's, uh, it's older book, it's an older book but it's still relevant as to why we should become a country in which the people have greater control. But I'm not here to suggest that you buy my book. If you go to Spectator Australia, go to their site and look up my name, you'll find that there is a recent article, Power to the People, and you can read more about what I'm proposing. What I'm proposing is that there be a second Korra plan. And I think you should be aware of something the politicians keep from you. And the, this is the fact that although the people were closely involved in the drafting of the Constitution, in that they elected the Convention, and in the approval of the Constitution, that is to say, in relation to the referendums, the politicians have managed to keep the people away from the Constitution 
except where they can't avoid it, that is, in relation to a referendum. So much so that there hasn't been a review by a convention elected by the people of the Constitution, as you would expect, in over a century, well over a century, a century and a quarter, we haven't had a review by the people. There've been reviews by politicians, there've been reviews by eminent lawyers, but none by the people, and that is well overdue. And hopefully that will happen. Now we're told it's a horse and buggy constitution. It's one of the best constitutions in the world. If the Australian constitution is a horse and buggy constitution, what on earth is the American constitution, which is substantially older? And the other thing we're constantly reprimanded about is we've only passed, what, eight out of 45 now, 45 referendums. Used to be 44, now 45. And we're told we are really laggards in this regard. The point is that one of the weaknesses in the Constitution is that only the politicians can propose changes to the Constitution. Only the politicians. And if we'd fully followed the Swiss model, we would have allowed the people to initiate changes to the Constitution or changes to laws. The other point is the High Court, the judges, the seven judges, have enormous powers because their decision is final. They interpret the Constitution and some of their interpretations have effectively been amendments of the Constitution. They've changed the meaning from the original intention. And that hasn't been approved by the people and sometimes the, some of those changes have been unpopular. The Australian people have been reluctant to give more power to Canberra, but Canberra has accrued an extraordinary amount of powers. So what I'm suggesting is a second Colorado plan, which would be an amendment to the existing Section 128, which is the section which authorises and requires referendums to change the Constitution. And that has six features. Firstly, it provides for the calling of a convention. Not only those, about not only those uh, proposals to change the Constitution, but proposals from the people to change laws. A convention would be elected by the people of each state and it would follow what happened in 1998 when John Howard established the Republic Convention. Each state would elect in the same proportion the number of senators and the number of members of the House of Representatives it has. So there'd be a slight loading, as there was in, in uh, 1998, a slight loading for the smaller states because they have representation in the Senate. And that would be, I think, a reasonable thing to do. And what, was, what John Howard did in 1998. So a convention would be elected by the people of the state. Now, how could that be triggered? And that comes to the next point of the plan, which, as I say, you can read if you want to, in 
in uh, Spectator where I've written a, a piece called Power to the People. Now the second point is that the Governor-General would cause writs to be issued for the election of a convention if he received a resolution from either House of Parliament as to some proposal to change the Constitution or he received a petition from the people. And that petition would have to be signed by a certain number of people. And I've suggested that the number of people who should sign the, the uh, document should be 1% of the electors qualified to vote. That's 1% of the people on the electoral rolls. Nowadays, that would be about 180,000 people. So it would have to be a serious issue for 180,000 people to sign a petition. And we can look at Switzerland in relation to the way in which you would ensure that those petitions were genuinely signed, they were actually signed by voters without intruding on their privacy. But you'd have to have some measures to do that, and the Swiss have great experience in that regard, and we could copy what they're doing. And I chose 1% because that was the figure which Bill Hayden chose when he drafted a Republican convention, a constitution for the 1998 convention. John Howard had appointed Bill Hayden, and he'd been a former Governor General, former leader of the Labour Party, and he appointed him because he was highly respected. And Bill Hayden drafted a constitution, the concept of a constitution, for an Australian republic. But he did say when he did that, he was doing it because he was appointed to that position. But he did go on the record as saying he thought the existing constitution was better than a capital R republic because he said the existing constitution is a small uh, republic, a crowned republic, and it works better than a formal republic. Anyway, he proposed that if there were to be a republic, the president should be elected by the people and that the candidates should be chosen by a petition, a document signed by 1% of the electors in Australia. That was a reasonable thing. And I thought that was a good figure and that would be the way in which you would trigger the Governor-General calling for the election of a convention. I thought, thirdly, that the convention should be free from political control or influence. So you wouldn't have delegates who came under the nomination of a registered political party. That would be undesirable. They could be members of a political party, but it would be much better to have delegates from groups interested in, for example, increasing democracy or what have you, but not from political parties. And they should be unpaid because you don't want to have people who are aiming to get into the convention so that they'll be paid a lot of money and get all sorts of expenses and so on. And the convention could work through using modern methods of communication. A lot of the work would be done online and through committees. There'd be honorary advisors to help them. 
You don't have to pay people to advise. You can get lots of people who'd be interested in advising, lawyers and the like, and it could be run very efficiently and cheaply. There wouldn't be too, the need for too many full sessions, plenary sessions of the convention. It could be run at minimal cost. Fourthly, I thought that it was important that the agenda not be cluttered with repetitive proposals, the same proposal for constitutional change. In this regard, I'm going to have a go at the so-called Republicans because what they've mainly proposed is a politician's republic, has nothing to do with what people generally regard as a republic, has nothing to do with improving the constitution, it was just to take away a check and balance on the politicians. You don't want the same issues coming up and up all the time onto the convention agenda. And I've thought that uh, for the same issue which had been rejected in a referendum to come up, you should require a very high percentage in a petition to get that. Instead of 1%, it should be something like 10%. I put down 20%, but I think that you, to bring back an issue can be tedious and it clutters up the agenda for constitutional change. The same with a general review. We haven't had a general review, but you shouldn't have them too often. There should be a, a minimum period between general reviews, something like 30 years, 20 years, I put in 15 years in the proposal which is in the Spectator article. So you must ensure that the agenda is not cluttered. And that's the way to do it, I suggest. Now the fifth point was the process. And the process, I suggest, is what was done in the convention in 1897. That is, once the convention has agreed on a draft, that be circulated to the parliaments and made very public so that there could be widespread consultation for a period of, say, three months or something like that, so that the people and the politicians can discuss the draft. And then that should come back to the convention for them to develop the final version. And my sixth point was what would happen with the final version. It could be one of two things. It could be a proposal to change the constitution or it could be a proposal for a law to repeal an existing law, to introduce a new law, to change an interpretation by the High Court of the Constitution. The people are entitled to do all these things, for example, with the decisions, for example, about uh, stripping people of citizenship or keeping people who are suspected as terrorists under the control of the Commonwealth. All of these things are matters which the people are entitled to raise, whether they are changes to the Constitution or whether they are just proposed laws or the repeal of laws. And I suggest in that sixth proposal that then this be put in a referendum to the people, the Governor-General gets it, it's put immediately in a referendum to the people, well, not immediately, in a certain time, and then, then the people vote. And I've suggested that that should only be passed 
if it's passed by a national majority and a majority in four states, in a majority of states. Majority in four states. And the reason is, as I've said earlier, with the changes in the population, obviously New South Wales with Sydney and Victoria with Melbourne, most of the immigrants, with an almost uncontrolled rate of immigration by the present government, we're going to have enormous populations in those two states and their two capitals. And I, I do think that the people of the other states need also to have a say before changes are made. And I think that the present provision requiring a double majority, there's a majority nationally and a majority in four states should be allowed. It's said that's very difficult. It's not that difficult. It depends on the quality of the proposal. And remember, every proposal we've had to vote on so far has been a proposal from the politicians and not the people of Australia. So that's the second Corridor Plan. I think it's the way in which we can move on or stay with the decision of the people last year, 6139, to reject what the politicians and the elites were trying to do. And if you look at that recent decision by Justice Charlesworth in the federal court concerning a project in the Timor Sea, you'll see why the people were right to stop that. If that had gone ahead, every development in Australia would have been held up and they would have gone back to existing things going on in Australia. This would have accelerated the trend, which is the result of mismanagement by the politicians, the trend of making Australia poorer so that eventually we become the Argentina of the South Seas. Remember at Federation, Australia and Argentina on a per capita basis were among the richest countries in the world. We slipped back. Luxembourg and Singapore and Norway are richer than we are now and we're slipping back and we'll go back further. Argentina went back very quickly because they got in some very bad politicians and they didn't have the institutions. According to a minister from the Menem government in Argentina, who was on ABC television, he put the reason down for Argentina not having the institutions we have, and he said not having the British institutions that Australia has. So there you have it. My suggestion, it's in Spectator, and I think we should increase the role of the people in controlling this company, country, as we saw in the referendum where the people voted so strongly. So thank you for listening. This is ADH-TV. The program is Save the Nation. My producer is Charlie Noble and I'm David Flint. And until next time.